Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I haven't seen the anger of the fires as much as this year. There is something that's driving them and, 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 you know, it just feels different to every other season that I've covered. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that sentence. This is different. So, hello, good people of pods, and welcome to the new political year of 2020, which has started with a... I'm looking at my guests. They're sort of speechless. Bang, I think is the word. Bang, where... Um, Back all uh, guns blazing. We've got millions of things happening in this first sitting week of the Parliament. You are on Australian Politics Live and I am Catherine Murphy. And with me in the studio this week are two, actually two of my favourite people. Astonishingly. Who are, who are <laughs> quite silent, which is a very uncharacteristic of both of them. With me is Mike Bowers, who is photographer at large for Guardian Australia. And also with me is Brett Mason, who is the chief political correspondent for SBS. And um, I've got two of my favourite people in the studio with me this week to talk about bushfires, because both of these uh, fellows have been on fire grounds for much of this really terrible, calamitous summer. I thought we'd get a little bit of a rest from it, but I should go and get my fire suit because the gnats are on fire. Well, <laughs> let's just stick to the let's stick to the climate bushfire calamity at this time. Yes, as we're recording tonight, the nationals are in their own sort of conflagration. But anyway, let's not cross the streams. So anyway, setting up this conversation, these two guys have been uh, on fire grounds for much of the summer. Uh, they're going to have some great observations. But I want to start uh, by getting them to tell you a story about last weekend uh, because I was in Canberra watching these two with a tremendous amount of alarm. So, Mike, why don't you kick off? What happened over the weekend? Well, on Friday, the um, Rural Fire Service in New South Wales put out a fairly alarming fire prediction map that uh, had uh, the um, clear valley, clear, clear range, yeah, clear range fire, which was um, the same fire really as the Auroral Valley one, except it was in New South Wales. So it was called a different thing, which we'll get to a little bit later. But it was alarming because it um, it encompassed a huge area um, the, of possible burning the next day. Now, the Rural Fire Service put these out as an aid to people. It's kind of a worst case scenario, and it's, 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 it's a fairly dark art 
in these predictions because you've got to take into effect uh, into account humidity, temperature, wind uh, speed and direction, and you know it's there's no guarantees. They 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 mostly get them right. You know sometimes they're they're a little bit off. So I had a look at that and I thought, oh goodness me, um, I better head down to uh, around Breadbow, which I did on the Saturday morning and. I sort of pinpointed a, a place where I thought the fire would come out of the hills and burn down to the Murrumbidgee. And, and just to be clear, just for uh, people who don't know our part of the world quite as well as we do, yeah. this this is just this is a small uh, uh, town between Canberra and Cooma, yes. basically. Red Bay is yeah. a small town between. Um, um, it's sort of three quarters of the way to Cooma from Canberra, about 40 minutes on the Monero Highway. And just 10k before Breadbow is a little turn called Bumbalong Road. So that's where I was sitting quietly on uh, Saturday morning and um, out came Lawrence Cowie and said, why don't you come and sit on the veranda with us and watch this fire come? And I thought, well, here is a house that is eminently defendable. It's in the middle of a large paddock with not too many trees around it and it was busted drought country with not much grass on it and I thought if the fire comes I'll be as safe as houses there. Mm. <laughs> um, as the morning wore on and... I was I was joined by some of my colleagues Brett and um, Ben Patrick the cameraman from SBS and Alex Ellinghausen mm-hmm. from uh, the Sydney Morning Herald. And uh, so, Brett, you show up at this point. Then, then what happens? So we arrived pretty much as the fire was popping out of the big mountain range that Bowers was at the bottom of. So we arrived as all the other residents, except for the Cowies, were leaving the valley. So effectively, it's not a town or a street um, that you might imagine in the city. It's a valley with homesteads and properties spread all around it. So we kind of arrived to everyone leaving with enormous flames really in the hills above and uh, we were speaking to people who pretty much grabbed what they had we'd heard that one of the houses was on fire uh, and that really motivated everyone to leave and many of those people who left uh, suffered property losses the Cowies stayed to to fight to defend their home they were pretty confident that they'll be able to do that uh, but even despite you know making that risk assessment thinking we're in a pretty safe space I think fair to say that we were all pretty surprised by the intensity of the fire. We were ready for the worst case scenario and I'm glad we were because we experienced it. And so what happened? You, you're there, you're hunkered down in the property, uh, there's an evacuation unfolding as you've described. You guys are you're there, you're hunkered down, uh, fire comes in. Just tell people what that's like. But it's not even as ordered as that, is it, Bowers? No, it's, it's fairly chaotic. It, look, it's really hard to put any sort of timeline on it. I remember shooting some video at about quarter to two in the afternoon because I looked at the time to actually say it on the video because I could look in every single direction and there seemed to be flames, which is pretty unusual when the wind was blowing from from the from, from the northwest. Um, so it should have been coming from one direction, but it seemed to me and, uh, from the video that I shot that it was actually coming in on all directions. And that is what happened to be the case, uh, as it eventuated fire actually came from, to the house from every single side, which, um, is pretty unusual because it's usually coming in on a front and yeah. you can, you can sort of hunker down on the opposite side to where it's coming in from. So, so uh, just, sorry, sorry, Brett, but just so, uh, so fire's coming at you from all directions, I suppose, uh, you know, and, and I accept your point about 
chaos and people, you know, it's not like you're having linear perfect thoughts in that situation. But I presume you would have thought to yourselves, should we get out of here? Yeah. Well, I think that the point is that when you make the decision to stay, uh, this is over a period of time, you know that you leave or you stay. And if you stay, you're staying. You're staying in place and you're sheltering in the worst case scenario. It's too, That's where a lot of people get caught up, that they, they stay. The RFS say, only stay if you feel confident that you can defend yourself and your property. And then when you're confronted with something like that, you panic and get in the car, tear up the road, get into trouble, get a flat tire, get stuck, and then you get into strife. So we made a decision well before this sort of happened that we would stay together no matter what and that we we had a good sort of situational awareness about where the cars were and and great communication when it happened we we didn't need to speak with each other instinctively people were doing what needed to be done to keep each other safe and if you leave at that point when there's the smoke comes in very thick mm, so you can't that's what see I was going to say. and, and, yeah, and, and there's no, no vision there's mm. no visibility Zero, yeah. you've got you've got uh, you lose your sense of direction um, um, the flames and the embers can be quite can fronting and, and the glass in a car is no um, barrier to the radiant heat that comes through. So you're much. we were much safer where we were than jumping in the cars. We were about sort of a six to eight K, I'd say, down Bumbalong Road. So it was quite a long dirt road journey to get out. Okay. So you're there, fire's coming in. What do you do? Well, the, the odd thing was that where we were, we were sort of below. That's the other good thing about the terrain. Where we were, we were sort of in a safe space in terms of the fire front. So the front, we now know it's the front. We knew it was a large fire, but the front moved through maybe 500 metres to our south, went along a hill incredibly fast, probably 700 metres in under a minute. That's how quickly it was moving up the hill. That passed, and there was that moment where we could see the flames all around us, and that's where that video you would have seen, Bowers' tweet... But it sort of calmed down at that point. So we actually started feeding our material back to our newsroom. Uh, and then we, I, I remember it because I just turned around. We were talking, all filing, and I just saw this very large fire near where the horses were, the back paddock, and just shouted spot fire. And from that point, that's when things really kicked off. Yeah, there were some tea trees along the road too. Tea trees are an amazing thing. They actually explode when fire hits them. And um, it, it, it's a spectacular thing, but it's also quite a frightening thing because it, it builds radiant heat, which then sets other bits in, uh, alight. And um, they sort of took off as well around that time, I think it was. It's hard to get a, a proper linear time frame to it. And it was probably that heat that was, you know, the vision and the, the photos that you would have seen were incredible. It was like... Uh, even on the very short grass, it was like liquid flame. Mm. It, it wasn't what you'd imagine when you look at a fireplace, even or a, or a barbecue. It was it was almost like a liquid fire, probably because of the tea tree as well. And we, it probably would have been an ember from that that landed in this dry paddock. And then because of the topography, not a huge hill down, but it just ran, didn't it, down the hill straight was, towards the I was the amazed at how much fire a bare paddock can hold mm. because for, for to look <laughs> so at it... Well, it, there's it, nothing to burn. There's nothing so. to burn. It looks mm. like dirt and rocks and, it, and there's sort of a powdery sort of dirt on it and it can hold... Uh, you know, flame that's up to waist height in places. So once that got going, it was like lighting um, an inflammable, like methylated spirits on a table mm. would just just mm. roll along and uh, and and it, and it and it 
was it would take its own direction. So you'd think you were trying to avoid it, and then suddenly it'd come for you. It was uh, it was quite uh, lively there for for a few minutes. And, and lively, tell me about lively. So what did you do? I mean, I've, I've I've obviously seen your pictures, Mike, and I've seen Alex's pictures, and I've seen your vision. I mean, it's you 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 grabbed the hoses and you went for it, didn't you? I yeah. Mean, well, Lawrence, was... who was the owner, and Claire, his wife, uh, it became obvious that the 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 fire was overwhelming the property and I got very mad. I just got angry at the fact that, that the fire was overwhelming these guys' property. So it became obvious in the end they needed a hand. So um, Alex and I grabbed the other firefighting vehicle, which had a pump and a, and a spray on it, and um, and I jumped in his ute. I have a, I have a thing for old utes. I've got a bit of a soft spot for him. <laughs> so I learnt at a very <laughs> unexpected moment <laughs> as you emerged from a barn. <laughs> and I, I yelled at driving Lawrence. One, burning barn. Driving one quite fast. <laughs> I, I, uh, I yelled at Lawrence, do you want me to save the ute? And he went, yeah. <laughs> so I jumped in it, and uh, there's great vision that Ben Patrick took of me screaming out with a with a screaming um, fan belt out of this <laughs> burning shed as I drove the Ute to safety. It was one of my proudest moments. Absolutely, Murph. I know, and and knowing uh, knowing a lot more about your Ute fetish, I cannot stress to the people listening to this how important that would have been for Mike in order to get that, that what Ute I, out. What so. I failed to see was was that he had he had a classic hog motorcycle next to it, which oh, no. burnt down, and I. Just just didn't even see oh, it because I would have loved to have jumped on the hog and driven that oh, out of well, the absolutely. flame. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's kind of only it's it's a, it's only half a story told, really, isn't it? Yes. Like not being able to save the bike. Okay, so you're getting the Ute out, amongst other things. Brett, what are you doing? At this uh, point? Well, Lawrence was kind of. Um, getting us all to do different things. So Ben, at this point, because we were feeding our material, when this kicked off, we were actually live. So our newsroom in Sydney are watching um, sort of, you know, our vision coming back. The next thing, it's 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 chaos. So this was actually being fed live back to our newsroom. Um, so Ben was c- sort of capturing what he could while also helping. Uh, Alex was on a hose trying to save a tractor. Uh, this is all happening where we're fighting as a team to save the barn. And I turn around, we're probably, what, 50 metres from the house, not that far, and that's when I see fire uh, at the house, like literally at the house on three sides. And that's when uh, we sort of split up as a group. We were working as a team, but straight away we knew what had to be done. So I ran, uh, shouted to the team, and then I moved off. Bowers will tell you what he was doing at this point in a moment. Um, but I ran to the house where Claire was, and she was very panicked. Um, the first thing we noticed was that the water pump beside the house was very close to catching on fire. There was grass around that, which obviously would have impacted our ability to defend the house. So we sort of stomped on that. There were people um, using what hoses were there, their feet. Uh, I jumped in the cars that were there. So they had a couple of vehicles, our cars, and we were moving those to burnt ground. So Alex and I, at that point, uh, as the you know, the really intense part hit. We were just constantly moving vehicles. Um, Claire went inside towards the sort of hairier part. Uh, My cameraman did the same. He was having a bit of trouble uh, breathing. Uh, So he went inside to kind of clear his breath. Uh, And that's when we sort of regrouped and and heard what Bowers and and his uh, team had been doing a few hundred metres away. I I hate to throw to you, Mike, at this point, because I can see the look on your face. What on earth were you doing? Well, I got separated from these guys and it was 
only about 10 metres apart, but we, the, the, the fire rolled down the hill between us and, and I could feel the radiant heat coming from it. It was too much to run through. So um, a big shout out to the Rural Fire Service New South Wales for their training at this point because I can remember popping into my head something that Ben Shepherd told me at one of their sessions, which was get behind anything that's going to deflect the radiant heat until it's flashed over you and then you'll be fine. And I just happened to be only about three steps away from the stables, which was already starting to be on fire. So I stepped in there and I got behind the corrugated iron till the grass fly flashed over and, and, and it worked, you know. Big ups for you, Ben. You actually got me through that. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. We're all grateful. Yeah. Thank you for that. So, okay, so, um, God, this is actually, this is quite hard. <laughs> It's quite hard for me to have this conversation. And, and of course, I need to recognise at this point that people listening to this conversation uh, have been in all kinds of stress throughout the summer. People, uh, you know, there could be people listening to our conversation who have lost property, lost homes and worse, and our heart goes out to you. Absolutely. I mean, we get to drive away from these... Um places and uh, you know it's that once the job's done and, and the people who are left there are left picking up the pieces of their sort of shattered lives and the the cow is you know luckily the house did not go in the end um, we all jumped on various bits of working material that was able to pump water and, and managed to stave it off with with um, Lawrence and Claire but um, yeah our heart goes out to people who've who've lost stuff it's just it's devastating and, and even in this case where you know a lot of people got in touch after seeing our you know our experience which we've been quite upfront about because i think you know it's a powerful message experience mm. to show people what mm. it's like absolutely and people sort of said to me oh it's fantastic that was a great result you know they only lost their shed and yeah sure it could have been much worse but in that shed was hay that they'd spent probably their last you know thousand bucks in terms of stock money on they lose that uh, horses you know, bridles all Saddles. of that all mm. of that equipment Not all of the feed. fences really expensive equipment that you know? You know, when you're on a farm, you know it's not it's not these aren't luxury items; these are essentials. And um, in particular, I found Claire was very distressed about her horses, um, who, um, in some incredible images, uh, she let charging. them out. She let them out at one stage. So um, um, when the fire came from an unexpected angle, they had them where they thought they were safe. It became obvious that probably was not safe, so they let them out into a larger paddock to be able to get away from it, and they ran against uh, flames. And um, uh, that's when we took the images of the, the horses running against the flames, which has sort of gone quite viral, really. Um, um, I have I can report, very thankfully, I went back because I wanted to see how they were going the next day. All the horses, uh, Charm, Obi and Billy have survived and I took them some food and they were very grateful. But um, yeah, they, 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 they escaped without losing the life of their property or their cows. They've got a, they've got a small herd of banded galways, but um, it was 40 years, they told me, of building that farm up to the point where it was that sort of taken them back now and they've got a house to live in and nothing else. The, the fences are gone, the, the infrastructure that waters, the, the, the cattle and horses is all melted and gone. The, 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 uh, their ride on mower, their tractor, the, the harvester, um, his motorbike, um, um, all the, it's all gone. So they're, they're almost starting from scratch. And there was quite a surreal moment where 
it all passed through and I think we all, you know, there was fire still burning around the property in the longer grass, but our immediate area around the house um, had burned. There was nothing left to burn, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah. And so we're kind of standing there um, and uh, the cowie sat down and I ran to the car and just got some bottled water. That was sort of one of the things we were doing as well was because this was really exhausting. I just kept saying, drink some water, just have a few sips, throw the bottle in the car, just keep hydrated. And um, I just sat down with Lawrence on just the bricks of his windowsill and I was pretty upset. I'm not too proud to say um, because you know, I remember going through the 94 fires as a kid and it changed changed my town, it changed my experience of fire. And um, he just said, 40 years to build this and we're sitting here watching it burn in 40 seconds. And uh, I think for them, the thing that kind of hit me the most was realising that there's a beautiful property looking over the Murrumbidgee, you know, probably everything they dreamed of and, and, and that's now, that's kind of stolen, right? Like those memory, the, the, the sort of situational awareness, you know, it, it's something terrifying that came to your place, your your home. Yes. And it's terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Lawrence kept saying to me, you've got to come back when it's green. You won't believe what it's yeah, like. Yeah, it's so much nicer it's so when much it's not nicer. on fire. And, and it, was like, it was like he was almost apologising for the way it looked now and and um it really it really moved me because it, it was absolutely obvious the deep love that he had for that country mm. and, and where he was on it you know there was a connection to to where he lived at, yeah, uh, yeah well this is yeah and this is this, this is helpful actually because it, it can push us into the next little bit of this conversation which is firegrounds more generally right so that was a very specific and uh and uh well sobering frightening experience that you guys had uh, covering this fire, but both of you have been out all summer, all around the place, uh, dealing with this as, as a story. Uh, you know, you've, you've gathered an enormous amount of intelligence on the ground in terms of how people are reacting to the sort of experience that we've just outlined here. You know, that people are vulnerable, people's sense of safety has been violated. Uh, you know, I know myself, having lived through the Canberra fires in 2003, if you live through something like that, you know, even if you come through unscathed and your loved ones are fine and your property's fine, you never forget it. It is, you know, it's something that picks up your life and puts it in an entirely new place. So what are, some, what are your observations, Brett? Why don't you start about how people are on the ground managing this experience? Well, I, I actually, I'm far more concerned about the sort of emotional and mental impact of these fires because they're exhausting. Like everywhere that you go, this isn't like one Saturday afternoon, there's a fire and it's over and it was it was a, a very stressful day or week. These communities have been dealing with the threat of these fires popping out, the wind changing for months. I, I remember before Christmas, early December, the Currawan fire, um, which was burning on the south coast. My hometown is Batemans Bay. That's where I grew up. Uh, as soon as I saw that fire grow, I was terrified because I, I, exactly what happened was what I was fearing for weeks, just watching it grow with the Braidwood fire, then all these other fires started. So the first thing I think is that for people, it's been exhausting, gearing up that it might happen, um, the relief that it didn't happen, but 
than having to gear up again that it could happen another day. And then it does happen and could happen again. We're seeing that now that it burnt through um, my my suburb, um, was impacted on uh, New Year's Eve. Uh, I have about two, two dozen friends who've lost places, um, probably four or five that I went to high school with. So that gives you a sense of how personal this is for people. And uh, for me... Um, you know, the, the club where I had my first beer as an 18-year-old in Malua Bay burnt down. The, the Mogo Hall where I had my 21st birthday, that's burnt down. It's not just houses. It's, it's, it's a people's sense of community. And I think for me, what I worry about is the time and also the scale. I mean, we're really talking about fires from um, the Southern Highlands to the Victorian border and beyond. It's, that's what I find. And the time frame from mm. August until probably right, March. Months. Mm. months. It has gone on, on and, and on and on and on. And as you say, it's sort of like, uh, you know, it's periodic reinforcement. You're kind of up, you're down, you, you, you're preparing. It happens, it doesn't happen, it does happen. You know, and it's extremely It's not difficult just the fire too, Catherine. It's um, what happens is, you know, I was standing in a queue in... Uh, Bermagui in a supermarket and they were getting the emergency warning uh, yet again and and one of the residents said to another resident who were both clutching things like uh, batteries and water and all the rest of the things that you need when the fire is coming to impact you, oh, here we go again. And it summed it up for me that these people have had weeks and weeks and weeks of this. It's coming. It's not. It's coming. The power goes off. Your comms go down. You know, you've, you're, you're running water. I was in a street in, in Sussex Inlet um, around New Year and I watched as everyone turned on their hose. The the, the, the pressure goes down on the hoses so it's coming out like a, a dribble. Um you know, so people are filling up buckets and 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 baths and things like that, and, and that, as Brett indicated, has a huge mental strain on a community, especially a tight knit small community, where there's you know not a lot of resources and it's not you know there's not a whole heap of things you can draw on like a big city. So I, I wonder about and the, most of these places have their own RFS units who have been on call again and again and again and again and these are volunteers who've got other lives. Yeah, it is and, and, and families mm. who yep. are left at home. Yep. And so the Batemans Bay, the Malua Bay uh, RFS, um, having gone through 94, um, the fire burnt to our wall in Batemans Bay. Um, I grew up just with my mum and we were out there, uh, our whole street, um, fighting this fire. And uh, as soon as I was old enough, she was had pretty much said, you're, you're, you're joining the RFS juniors and all of us boys and a few girls as well, to be fair, uh, joined the local RFS. And uh, the Malua Bay was a brigade and the Surf Beach Brigade were my two brigades. And, uh, you know, they were out uh, on this uh, New Year's Eve fire. They lost their own cars and their own houses while they were out saving others. And in Malua Bay, 40 houses burnt through. I mean, that... And then the other thing too, which people don't think about, is there's sort of not a survivor's guilt, but because it picks one house, it saves two others, there's a sense of, you know, people feeling terrible about, you know, them coming back and everything's fine and the neighbours not having anything. Uh, and, and, and you can't, 
overstate the impact that has on a small town because you know if if one person in my town <laughs> loses a house it's a, a bit of everyone's impacted by that as well and the expectation you bang on that the RFS will show up to every house and 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 do their hero work is is really unreasonable to be fair and you know I get the whole argument they want to be there of course people want to be there to help their communities but they don't want to be there for 6 months every day Mm. No, of course not. I mean, and, and I have ridiculous. noticed that um, you know, as as the season has worn on, there's there's less uh, goodwill towards uh, towards us, particularly the media. So you know, which is perfectly understandable. You know, they've had months and months and months of this where they've been under scrutiny. I'd I'd, I'd start to get short with everyone as well. Mm. And what about uh, it's sort of um, you know we're talking about. You know, we're talking about life and death and psychological stress and injury and spirit of community. You know, it's sort of, God, it feels depressing to kind of inject politics in, but we sort of have to. So uh, obviously, um, you know, a lot of communities have uh, appeared pretty angry with Scott Morrison and the government, uh, but we're all in the news business. We know it's a reductionist Activity, you know, things are cut into news packages. It's 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 a snapshot of a moment in time. It's not necessarily representative of a big, broad, true reality. But you know, you guys have had <laughs> you guys have had a, a very big sample for several months. So what? Why don't you start, Mike? What's the I, look? I think what, indeed, I've seen some ridiculous things with borders. Um, you know, a, a fire doesn't respect a line on a map. So if you take the ACT, for instance, and you drive down the Monero Highway uh, past Williamsdale, which is another little hamlet on the Monero Highway on the way to Cooma, the border is actually the rail line, which is just beside the road. So I spoke to people who own property there, and on the New South Wales side, no one had come to see them, but on their neighbours, who were only 300, 400 metres away on the ACT side, had been briefed and spoken to and visited and all the rest of it. Now, you, you can sit there all you like and say, you know, well, that's New South Wales' fault. But it, it, it's, 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 a, it's a silly thing, I think, um, to have, you know, a fire which is ostensibly the same. The Auroral Valley fire is actually the Clearview fire, right? It's the same fire. They're called different things. I, I just, I think we need a national approach to... to 100%. And the frustration of people trying to juggle... Not only evacuations, you know, getting the photo albums into the car, but then juggling apps and alerts and websites and term terminology, um, briefings, uh, you know, at the height of the fires on Saturday, uh, you know, we were consuming the, the local media as well, who do a brilliant job. And I think, you know, everywhere that I've gone, people have spoken about how brilliantly commercial local media as well, the media has, has been amazing at getting information out there. But uh, with the ACT fire, the alerts were saying, you know, that information is being handled by the New South Wales RFS. So, you know, you need to source that from there rather than having that mixed messaging. I think that improved. Um, but I think it just it, it's another layer of stress that's really not necessary. Mike's right. Fires don't get to the border and go, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, sort of um, set up a demarcation. And, and I, I was watching the news back in um, December and they had the warnings for the next day and there was a catastrophic fire area that had a straight line on it between South Australia and New South Wales. How does a, how does a weather zone 
have a straight line on a map and it's catastrophic on one side and it's just, you know, high fire danger on the other. I think the whole thing's ridiculous. It, it, you, need, you need a national approach and you can still keep all the state-based firefighting teams, but I just think that people need want to go to one place when they're stressed like that. You, you have enough on your plate trying to organise whether you're going to go or stay, what you're going to take and how you're going to do it without having to go to multiple places for when you live near a border zone. And there's a lot of people who live near borders. Yeah, and even in Eden, you know, the terminology that's close to the Victorian border, that was one thing um, at that really awful day um, uh, I was at the wharf when people gathered and there was a briefing and people had gathered to the, you know, I'm from the, the coast. I feel comfortable and safe near the water. That's a safe space. The harbour uh, was there. So a lot of people uh, moved down there to sort of seek shelter if they needed to. And and the police said, you know, it's not safe for you to be here. You need to leave. Uh, and, and people were saying, well, are we being forced to evacuate? Because I feel more dangerous about getting in the in the car and fanging up the highway to, to Bega or Marimbula. And there was this sort of ambiguity about what words meant. And I think that adds another layer of stress. We saw couples uh, arguing. Someone wanted to say, someone wanted to go. Um, so I, I think sort of a, I'm not a big fan of nationalisation or standardisation, but I think if there was one one place where all of that was collated, it would make those moments of really intense stress a, a lot more um, well, a lot less stressful. Mm. And so and so, those sorts of, um, well, I mean, it's much more than an inconvenience, but I'm struggling for another word. So those sort of inconveniences, those sort of deficiencies, I guess, in the system, who are people blaming? Yeah, lots. Well, yeah, a variety of people. Yeah. The government uh, generally, um, when you ask them who, um, it's, it's a wide-ranging people. Everything from the Greens not letting people burn to, um, you know, Scott Morrison and, and you know Barnaby Joyce was even blamed for something I, I heard um, down the coast a few and, weeks and, back. And to super local issues too. Yeah. You know, like yeah. um, the council isn't allowing us to take our green waste to the tip for free because you know part of the process of gearing up the RFS says remove um, you know items from your backyard, prune trees, and people were saying, well, hang on, we're paying twenty bucks to bring our our stuff like this is a this is a, an emergency you know we shouldn't be paying for this so i think there's an anger at government as a blanket approach um and you know there are a few things that stuck there were, we were out on the road um around braidwood during the the sort of scott morrison in hawaii story and um you know, I don't want to politicise the bushfires, but uh, people were angry about that. They Very were, angry. They were white hot about that. Yeah. People were, um, you know, we spoke to, to one guy who lost his place and, and he was incensed. Uh, and particularly by the line about, you know, I, I don't hold a hose. He said, I don't want you to hold a hose. I, would, I just want you to be here. And I, I want to feel supported. And, you know, there are a lot of people who also are like, you know, he was away. He couldn't do that. I mean, I don't think there's a blanket approach that you can put to that. But I was surprised. And I know people know Mike and I do p cover politics. It's it's our passion. So, you know, in fairness, they probably approach those conversations from a political perspective. But I was really surprised and particularly knowing uh, my community, sort of Eden Monero, Bega, how uh, we saw Andrew Constance come out very strongly. He's the Liberal member for Bega, uh, Transport Minister in New South Wales. He was uh, very critical very quickly. Um, and that gives you a sense in those communities how, how, how immediately frustrated and isolated a lot of those towns felt. Not 
just in the day, uh, but even now services are slow to, to to sort of kick in that support. Mike had an experience uh, with Lawrence going through paperwork. You know, there's there's layers that people have to work through at, at these really extreme, you know, emotional moments. Yeah, when I arrived at the property uh, on the Sunday of Lawrence and uh, Claire Cowie, um, um, the police and the uh, the land management people were there and, and he was sort of up to his neck in filling out bits and, and pieces. Forms. And forms. What, what and forms? Yeah. Oh, well, for free fee, there's, you've got oh, to unlock yes, all, the, right. all, the, yeah. all the aid that comes through requires a certain amount of bureaucratic paperwork to go with it and, and um, he couldn't sort of talk to me or help me unload the, the things I'd bought him until, until he'd got through all this. Uh, until he'd signed his yeah. form. I've covered fires for many years, most of my career and on and off, you, you know, you, some years were worse than others. And up until this season, I'd been in two fires back in the 90s, which were years apart, where the fire was of such intensity that it generated enough smoke and and activity to generate its own weather. So what happens is that it, it, pyrocumulus clouds get generated by the activity and you get you get you know, pyro thunder from the heat and it goes very dark, um, pitch black in fact. So it's like in the middle of the day, it just turns to night and it's it's when it rains soot on you, it's quite a biblical experience. Mm-hmm. I, I Over the New Year period, I went to three of those in the space of about 11 days. It was uh, at Bargo, um, at uh, Sussex Inlet on New Year's Day and a few days later up at Adam Inneby. And, you know, for that three different locations, for that intensity, uh, I, I haven't seen fires this intense. And, and a lot of the RFS people are saying the same thing. That they Absolutely. seen fires of this intensity, this duration. And, and there's just a doggedness to them. Mm-hmm. And when they're angry, they are really angry. The one at Sussex Inlet that blasted out of the, the forest there and came across the road on New Year's Eve, it was a spitting, snarling monster. And th- I think that's the scaredest I've ever been in front of a, a wall of flame because it was you just looked at it and it sounded like when they reverse the thrusters on a, on a jet when it lands. So, and, and, you know, it was of that intensity the ground was rumbling. And we've got scanners that we listen and you can hear it in the voices of the RFS people. There's a nervousness that, that makes me nervous when they're getting nervous because they've seen far more than I have. Um, and and I just I haven't seen the anger of the fires as much as this year. There is something that's driving them and, 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 and you know, it just feels different to every other season that I've covered. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that sentence. This is different. From the south coast uh, to uh, the snowy, uh, all the places we've been, everyone who... And that's the other thing. We shouldn't underestimate these people. Um, they've seen bushfires. They've lived through these things before they get it. You know, uh, they, they've experienced fires and have war stories and survival stories and stories of loss. But people who've spent a lot of time preparing their homes, fighting fires, uh, covering fires, all say this is different. And that's where I think the political element that we probably haven't seen in previous um, situations like this um, comes in because people 
want to talk about why these fires are different. And as Mike said, there's a, a lot of people that I've spoken to who've kind of said, you know, we've been trying to clear that paddock or that gully or get our neighbours to do that, but you can't cut down a tree and you can't do this and you can't do that. And there are others who say, well, you know, we know it's getting hotter. Uh, we know that that, that that has an impact on these fires. And even if it doesn't, you know, impact how those fires start, it impacts how they burn. And uh, I, I think that's why a lot of people uh, are, are talking about these fires in a political context. And I think there have been events that, that have really triggered people who are in these communities. They're doing it tough. They fear that they're going to lose everything. And uh, they're mad about stuff. And, you know, I think that it's at different levels of government. Um, but I, I think that that breaking down of of what's made these fires different will take a long time. And I think that'll be part of the healing too, because people want to know, you know, we've built a house, we've done all the right things, we've done all the, taken all the precautions we should, but it still came through. Why? Mm. And, and presumably it's part of people facing up to the fact that this may be the new normal. I mean, not every... We're not going to see a fire season like the the one that we've endured this year every year because we we just won't. But people are now starting to sift through their mind whether or not we we have had a permanent step change here and what that means down the track and, you know, for both to try and, uh, you know, keep themselves and their family safe and also adapt to the future, right? So And, the, you know, the progression is not from from the last fires to this fire. If you talk to people, which we have through our coverage, it's not just on the front line. You know, we're talking to, to scientists and people who study fires and, and fire patterns and history of climate. And, and they say that this progression and intensity of fire has happened. You know, we can measure it through the 90s, the 2000s and this period that the fires are getting, the fire season is getting longer. Uh, the fires themselves are getting hotter uh, and they're harder to fight. The window for hazard reduction burns is closing. Mm, All the RFS crews say that. They're finding it harder and harder to find the right time where the weather conditions are of the right... with the wind blowing in the right well, direction, when, so when they, they don't start. Yes, yeah, so that's right. When it's when it's safe. That, that sweet spot's harder and harder to find. And, you know, obviously, because people are anxious, you know, you can't take those risks. There's a very real sense of risk aversion, which is great, you know, given we've had loss of life previously. I think that's another factor where there is a sense of, um, you know, leaning forward, I think is how the commissioner here in the ACT described the sort of warning system and evacuations that we're not going to be afraid to lean forward and 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 get people um, to be ready which is a great thing no one disputes that but I think that there's a sense of kind of fear aversion which means that people are um, you know more risk averse yes. which I think has had an impact as well on these communities that maybe there's been added intensity or or fear about taking precautions uh, in the lead up and also then during getting people out, um, the, the language that's used, those fire spread maps cr create a lot of anxiety. I mean, if you're sitting in Breadbow on Saturday and you see that fire spread and your town is covered in red, um, it's, it's, it's very unsettling. Hmm. It's, a, it's a really hard thing to fight a fire that comes to your property. I just I had a friend who rang me yesterday after they saw the pictures of what had happened at, um, at um, Tellerbrook Lodge, which is the name of the place that uh, we're on. 
And uh, she said, you know, do you think I should stay because she lives on the edge? And I, and I just said, you know, she's a, she's a single woman. And I just said, no, I just would not, as a single woman, without any proper equipment, stay and try to defend. It's just, it's, I just don't think, unless you know what you're doing and you really are, um, have, a, have a proper bushfire management plan in with a very set line about when you're going to leave, because when it actually kicks off... The chaos around you, it makes it very hard to pick a line, I think, um, when you, you think now it's time to go because once it sort of gets to the panic stage, it's too late it's to go. It's way mm. too late. Yes. Yeah, and, you, you know, and, and, I, and I, can't, I can't stress that enough. It, it becomes so chaotic that if you start to panic and go, well, now it's time to go, that's too late. You need to get out before the, the fire impacts. Well, we could, you can tell, right, guys, we could go on really for probably an hour and a half with this, but we we, uh, we, we can't. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I just want to say on behalf of people listening, uh, thank you to Brett, thank you to Mike uh, for some really exceptional, uh, measured, thoughtful, empathetic, brave reporting over the summer. Thank you on behalf of listeners. And I want to say again... Uh, from the three of us to people listening to this podcast who have been impacted by this summer of calamity, uh, you know we are sending all of all of our love to you, and uh, we understand that this is a huge story that will go on for months, and uh, we will be continuing to cover all of the dimensions of this story for months. So thank you for listening. Uh, basically, we're back in session now, back in uh, our normal weekly pattern. Parliament is sitting again for the year. Uh, we'll be back again next week. Thank you, as always, to Executive Producer Miles Martignoni for his services to this pod, to Hannah Izzard and to others. See you next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.